Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher, on summer break now, sort of, after finishing my 20th year in the classroom. This past year was the weirdest year I've ever had, because it feels like it never ended. And because right now, everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. And it feels like we're all trapped and waiting anxiously to see what's going to happen next. It feels like some terrible nightmare, some awful dream, dredged up from the swampiest, foulest, murkiest depths of our collective unconscious. And somehow, we just can't wake up out of it. In fact, it's like it's a lucid dream, but everything we try to control actually backfires, and then the situation gets worse, and turns into some terrible acid trip. First there was maybe a war, then the pandemic, and then the economy, and then the riots... Then there was a wildfire burning in the hills outside my kitchen window, and now the pandemic is ramping up just as we're supposed to be planning for the coming school year, and also coming up soon is the election. Who knows what else? Who knows how this will end? So to echo that experience, and to escape for at least a little while from the constant stream of madness and horror, because art imitates life and life imitates art, we're reading Endless Tales. Stories and poems that do not have a clear ending. And also, I'm using the same script, verbatim, for the opening of several of these episodes, which I hope just adds to the weirdness. If it does, if you noticed and it felt strange, I want you to understand that this is just a tiny taste of my life. Because while I don't follow a script per se, I do make the same points and the same comments, sometimes even the same jokes, every time I teach the same piece in different classes in different years or sometimes in the same year. One year in Oregon, I taught six sections of the same class, 10th grade English. So there were several weeks in there when I was teaching the same chapter of the same book six times in a row every day. It was Fahrenheit 451, by the way, which, considering the book, was pretty surreal. Also, that's why I know that book so well. I can still remember page numbers from specific scenes from the edition I used. Anyway. Today, though... Maybe because this has reached the height of weirdness, maybe because I'm back in online in-service for the upcoming school year, in-person classes have been delayed until after Labor Day, but here in Arizona, we start school in early August, and this year we will be in online class on August 10th. Today, we are reading the last of the series, and the absolutely wonderful paradox of a sequel to an endless tale. The Discourager of Hesitancy by Frank R. Stockton the sequel to the story from the last episode, The Lady or the Tiger. This is a fantastic story. It follows directly after The Lady or the Tiger. Well, it's set nearly a year later, as it tells us in the first sentence. And it picks up the same storyline. So this one gives the answer to the first one, right? I mean, it's the sequel, right? So obviously it tells us what happened. This one tells us which do- which what came out of the door in the arena, The Lady or the Tiger. Well, maybe it does. Follow along and see. As always, I recommend having a paper or editable on-screen copy of the text in front of you as we read this. This one's pretty complicated, so a copy you can look at while you listen is a really good idea. I got mine from a bit of an unusual place this time. Uh, Project Gutenberg actually doesn't have a copy of this particular story. 38 books from Frank Stockton, but no discourager of hesitancy, alas. There's a lovely PDF of the story, uh, reproduced from a magazine, one of the early publishings of it, at a site called Victorian Voices, and I'll put a link to that in the episode description. But PDFs aren't ideal for close reading, because you can't really annotate them. I mean, I'd like to say you should print it out and then write on the paper, but really, who uses a printer anymore? There's a wiki site that has a copy of it, but because I'm a bit paranoid and a bit of a stickler for the author's precise use of language, and because I got burnt on my free copy of The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, which had a bunch of typos, I was a bit suspicious of the wiki copy. So I found another cool website called the HathiTrust Digital Library, which is HathiTrust.org, which has 17 million digitized items, including a digitized copy of The Christmas Wreck and Other Stories, which is the Frank Stockton book of short stories that originally included this one. Uh, It's a really neat thing for a bibliophiliac dork like me because it's basically a scan of the actual 130-year-old book, the cover and all the pages. It's beautiful. So I check the wiki source copy, which I copy-pasted into a Word document, 
And then I went through comparing it to the HathiTrust scan of the original book, and I corrected all the mistakes according to the HathiTrust source. Was it a lot of work? I mean, yeah. Was it entirely pointless? I mean, yeah. But was it satisfying? Definitely, because here's something I could control. Anyway, now I have a good copy of this story. Editable, in a Word document, um, that is based as closely as I can make it on the original printing of it and the original uh, typeface and everything. So things like um, the the wiki source copy um, misused quotation marks at the ends of paragraphs because most of the story is uh, directly told by a character in the story. There's a frame story and then the story being told to us. And so when someone is speaking over an extended uh, period, over several paragraphs, you don't close the quotation marks at the end of each paragraph, but you do put open quotation marks at the beginning of the next paragraph to signify that you are the person is still speaking and they have not stopped speaking. And, uh, you know, understandably, the wiki source didn't do that. Either the person who typed it up didn't know it or they just weren't aware of it or that didn't seem right. So all of their paragraphs have closed quotation marks. So I took all those out. And then... Uh, the Stockton story in The Christmas Wreck actually capitalizes the K in King whenever it talks about the king and the P in Prince whenever it talks about the prince. But the Wikisource one didn't do that because that's, you know, not really grammatically correct. Although obviously it's a stylistic choice because these characters don't have names. They just have these titles. So I made all those corrections. That's what the thing was. And so now I have a copy that has the capitalization as Stockton wanted it, that has the correct grammar as, you know, is as close as I might have, I'm sure I missed a comma or two, but otherwise I tried as hard as I could to get everything just right. And so I've got that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to post that for download on my website because the story is out of copyright. It is in the public domain, even if uh, Project Gutenberg hasn't picked it up yet. Um, the Hathi Trust, by the way, also tracks whether works are in the public domain. If you look at a book there, it's actually got uh, part of the listing on the side of the page next to the scan, next to the image, is it says um, copyright status and it has, you know, public domain. So anyway, so you can go to my website, theodenhumphrey.com and download a nice copy of this story. Uh, I'll put a link in the, to the page in the episode description as well. And then also, if you want the, like I said, the, the, the PDF one from Victorian Voices, you'll have that link. Check it out. You want to have the paper copy while you read this. Okay. So I'm going to read this, then go over some vocabulary, and then we'll break the story down and try to make sense of it, including the ending. First, let me give a quick recap of the first story. The Lady or the Tiger tells the story of a semi-barbaric king in ye olden times who has a unique system of justice. When a crime is committed, the criminal is put into an arena under the observation of the citizens of the kingdom and is made to choose between two doors. Behind one door is the most vicious, hungry tiger in all the land. And if that door is chosen, the tiger leaps on the criminal and devours him on the spot. Behind the other door is the most beautiful and delightful lady that the king could find in his kingdom for the accused man. And if that door is chosen, the man and the lady are married on the spot, and there is much rejoicing. The kingdom considers this choice to be the final judgment of guilt, because the accused criminal is himself making the choice, and the result is, supposedly, determined purely and only by chance. If the man chooses the tiger, it is because he is guilty of the crime, and fate put the tiger, you know, made him choose the tiger door. And if he chooses the lady, it doesn't just reveal his innocence, it determines his innocence. That's the way it's worded in the story. It's a fascinating situation. So then what happens is the king discovers that his own beloved, beautiful, and semi-barbaric daughter has been having a romantic affair with a handsome commoner, or at least a lesser nobleman, one who's not worthy of her status. Uh, the king throws this uppity peasant into the arena and makes him choose the door, determining his fate. But the princess has done what the story claims, and I don't believe, has never been done before. She has discovered which of the two doors is which. The fate of the man she loves is in her hands, and she can tell him which door will save his life and which will kill him. But there's another plot twist, because the princess also knows which lady her father selected for her paramour to marry if he gets the door with the lady. And it is one of her rivals, a beautiful young lady of the court who has flirted with the princess's honey bunny in the past. So now the princess has to make a choice. Does she save the man's life, knowing that she will then have to live the rest of her life watching the man she loves 
flaunting and being flaunted by her rival on his arm? Or does she make an end to the whole affair right there in the arena, given the tiger door, and then grieve and move on? The story says she has already considered every angle of this, and her decision is made before the arena starts, before the man comes into the arena. Her lover looks to her from the floor of the arena, and she gives him a signal, and he marches straight to the door she indicates and throws it open. I actually think there's an opportunity in that moment that Stockton walked away from. There should also be a question here as to whether the man would trust the princess, knowing her intimately as he does. There could be some doubt that he would actually go to the door she indicated, or if he would assume she would send him to the tiger and choose the door she doesn't indicate, right? Imagine that. Imagine if she signals to the door on the right and he goes to the door on the left because he thinks she's looking to kill him. An interesting thought. But also, he doesn't know who the lady is and that it would send his love into fits of jealous pique. So, of course, he would assume that she would save his life, that she wouldn't have him killed. So he goes to what he wants. Anyway. But, of course, and this is why the story is one of my endless tales, Stockton doesn't tell us which door the man gets. He leaves it up to the audience to decide. Is it the lady or the tiger? A year later, though, and I assume after a year's worth of angry letters and comments and demands that he reveal the answer despite having genuinely good reasons, I think, why he doesn't tell us which it is, Stockton wrote this sequel. And I can just imagine the hype, the people lining up to buy the magazine, read the story, find out at last what the answer was. Just like uh, you're waiting now. While I drag this out. Okay, I'm kidding. That's enough. It's time we get our answer. Ready? Here we go. The Discourager of Hesitancy by Frank R. Stockton It was nearly a year after the occurrence of that event in the arena of the semi-barbaric king, known as the Incident of the Lady or the Tiger, that there came to the palace of this monarch a deputation of five strangers from a far country. These men, of venerable and dignified aspect and demeanor, were received by a high officer of the court, and to him they made known their errand. Most noble officer, said the speaker of the deputation, it so happened that one of our countrymen was present here in your capital city on that momentous occasion when a young man who had dared to aspire to the hand of your king's daughter had been placed in the arena in the midst of the assembled multitude and ordered to open one of two doors, not knowing whether a ferocious tiger would spring out upon him or a beauteous lady would advance, ready to become his bride. Our fellow citizen, who was then present, was a man of super-sensitive feelings, and at the moment when the youth was about to open the door, he was so fearful, lest he should behold a horrible spectacle, that his nerves failed him, and he fled precipitately from the arena, and, mounting his camel, rode homeward as fast as he could go. We were all very much interested in the story which our countrymen told us, and we were extremely sorry that he did not wait to see the end of the affair. We hoped, however, that in a few weeks some traveler from your city would come among us and bring us further news. But up to that day when we left our country, no such traveler had arrived. At last it was determined that the only thing to be done was to send a deputation to this country, and to ask the question. Which came out of the open door, the lady or the tiger? When the high officer had heard the mission of this most respectable deputation, he led the five strangers into an inner room where they were seated upon soft cushions and where he ordered coffee, pipes, sherbet, and other semi-barbaric refreshments to be served to them. Then, taking his seat before them, he thus addressed the visitors. Most noble strangers, before answering the question you have come so far to ask, I will relate to you an incident which occurred not very long after that to which you have referred. It is well known in all regions hereabouts that our great king is very fond of the presence of beautiful women about his court. All the ladies-in-waiting upon the queen and royal family are most lovely maidens, brought here from every part of the kingdom. The fame of this concourse of beauty, unequaled in any other royal court, has spread far and wide. 
and had it not been for the equally widespread fame of the systems of impetuous justice adopted by our king, many foreigners would doubtless have visited our court. But not very long ago, there arrived here from a distant land a prince of distinguished appearance and undoubted rank. To such an one, of course, a royal audience was granted, and our king met him very graciously, and begged him to make known the object of his visit. Thereupon the prince informed his royal highness that, having heard of the superior beauty of the ladies of his court, he had come to ask permission to make one of them his wife. When our king heard this bold announcement, his face reddened. He turned uneasily on his throne, and we were all in dread, lest some quick words of furious condemnation should leap from out his quivering lips. But by a mighty effort he controlled himself, and after a moment's silence he turned to the prince and said, "'Your request is granted. Tomorrow at noon you shall wed one of the fairest damsels of our court.' Then turning to his officers, he said, Give orders that everything be prepared for a wedding in the palace at high noon tomorrow. Convey this royal prince to suitable apartments. Send to him tailors, bootmakers, hatters, jewelers, armorers, men of every craft whose services he may need. Whatever he asks, provide, and let all be ready for the ceremony tomorrow. But your majesty, exclaimed the prince, before we make these preparations, I would like... Say no more, roared the king. My royal orders have been given, and nothing more is needed to be said. You asked a boon? I granted it, and I will hear no more on the subject. Farewell, my prince, until tomorrow noon. At this the king arose and left the audience chamber while the prince was hurried away to the apartments selected for him. And here came to him tailors, hatters, jewelers, and everyone who was needed to fit him out in grand attire for the wedding. But the mind of the prince was much troubled and perplexed. "'I do not understand,' he said to his attendants, "'this precipitancy of action. "'When am I to see the ladies that I may choose among them? "'I wish opportunity,' not only to gaze upon their forms and faces, but to become acquainted with their relative intellectual development. We can tell you nothing, was the answer. What our king thinks right, that he will do. And more than this, we know not. His majesty's notions seem to be very peculiar, said the prince, and so far as I can see, they do not at all agree with mine. At that moment, an attendant, whom the prince had not noticed before, came and stood beside him. This was a broad-shouldered man, of cheery aspect, who carried its hilt in his right hand and its broad back resting on his broad arm, an enormous scimitar, the upturned edge of which was keen and bright as any razor. Holding this formidable weapon as tenderly as though it had been a sleeping infant, this man drew closer to the prince and bowed. "'Who are you?' exclaimed his highness, starting back at the sight of the frightful weapon. "'I,' said the other with a courteous smile, "'am the discourager of hesitancy. "'When the king makes known his wishes to anyone, a subject or visitor,' whose disposition in some little points may be supposed not to wholly coincide with that of his majesty, I am appointed to attend him closely, that, should he think of pausing in the path of obedience to the royal will, he may look at me and proceed. The prince looked at him and proceeded to be measured for a coat. The tailors and shoemakers and hatters worked all night, and the next morning, when everything was ready and the hour of noon was drawing nigh, the prince again anxiously inquired of his attendants when he might expect to be introduced to the ladies. "'The king will attend to that,' they said. 
we know nothing of the matter. Your Highness, said the discourager of hesitancy, approaching with a courtly bow, will observe the excellent quality of this edge. And drawing a hair from his head, he dropped it upon the upturned edge of his scimitar, upon which it was cut in two at the moment of touching. The prince glanced and turned upon his heel. Now came officers to conduct him to the grand hall of the palace in which the ceremony was to be performed. Here the prince found the king seated on his throne, with his nobles, his courtiers, and his officers standing about him in magnificent array. The prince was led to a position in front of the king, to whom he made obeisance, and then said, "'Your Majesty, before I proceed further—' At this moment, an attendant, who had approached with a long scarf of delicate silk, wound it about the lower part of the prince's face, so quickly and adroitly that he was obliged to cease speaking. Then, with wonderful dexterity, the rest of the scarf was wound around the prince's head, so that he was completely blindfolded. Thereupon, the attendant quickly made openings in the scarf over the mouth and ears, so that the prince might breathe and hear and fastening the ends of the scarf securely, he retired. The first impulse of the prince was to snatch the silken folds from his head and face, but as he raised his hands to do so, he heard beside him the voice of the discourager of hesitancy, who gently whispered, I am here, your highness. And with a shudder, the arms of the prince fell down by his side. Now before him he heard the voice of a priest who had begun the marriage service in use in that semi-barbaric country. At his side he could hear a delicate rustle which seemed to proceed from fabrics of soft silk. Gently putting forth his hand, he felt folds of such silk close beside him. Then came the voice of the priest requesting him to take the hand of the lady by his side. And reaching forth his right hand, the prince received within it another hand, so small, so soft, so delicately fashioned, and so delightful to the touch that a thrill went through his being. Then, as was the custom of the country, the priest first asked the lady, would she have this man to be her husband? To which the answer gently came in the sweetest voice he ever heard, I will. Then ran raptures rampant through the prince's blood. The touch, the tone, enchanted him. All the ladies of that court were beautiful. The discourager was behind him. And through his parted scarf, he boldly answered, Yes, I will. Whereupon the priest pronounced them man and wife. Now the prince heard a little bustle about him. The long scarf was rapidly unrolled from his head, and he turned with a start to gaze upon his bride. To his utter amazement, there was no one there. He stood alone. Unable on the instant to ask a question or say a word, he gazed blankly about him. Then the king arose from his throne and came down and took him by the hand. "'Where is my wife?' gasped the prince." "'She is here,' said the king, leading him to a curtained doorway at the side of the hall. The curtains were drawn aside, and the prince, entering, found himself in a long apartment, near the opposite wall of which stood a line of forty ladies, all dressed in rich attire, and each one apparently more beautiful than the rest. Waving his hand towards the line, the king said to the prince, there is your bride. Approach and lead her forth. But remember this, that if you attempt to take away one of the unmarried damsels of our court, your execution shall be instantaneous. Now, delay no longer. Step up and take your bride. The prince, as in a dream, walked slowly along the line of ladies, and then walked slowly back again. 
nothing could he see about any one of them to indicate that she was more of a bride than the others. Their dresses were all similar. They all blushed. They all looked up and then looked down. They all had charming little hands. Not one spoke a word. Not one lifted a finger to make a sign. It was evident that the orders given them had been very strict. Why this delay? roared the king. If I had been married this day to one so fair as the lady who wedded you, I should not wait one second to claim her. The bewildered prince walked again up and down the line, and this time there was a slight change in the countenances of two of the ladies. One of the fairest gently smiled as he passed her. Another, just as beautiful, slightly frowned. Now, said the prince to himself, I am sure that it is one of those two ladies whom I have married. But which? One smiled. And would not any woman smile when she saw, in such a case, her husband coming towards her? But then, were she not his bride, would she not smile with satisfaction to think he had not selected her and that she had not led him to an untimely doom? Then again, on the other hand, would not any woman frown when she saw her husband come towards her and fail to claim her? Would she not knit her lovely brows? And would she not inwardly say, It is I! Don't you know it? Don't you feel it? Come! But if this woman had not been married, would she not frown when she saw the man looking at her? Would she not say to herself, Don't stop at me! It is the next but one! It is two ladies above! Go on! And then again, the one who married me did not see my face. Would she not smile if she thought me comely? While if I were the one who frowned, could she restrain her disapprobation if she did not like me? Smiles invite the approach of true love. A frown is a reproach to a tardy advance. A smile... Now hear me, loudly cried the king. In ten seconds, if you do not take the lady we have given you, she who has just been made your bride shall be your widow. And as the last word was uttered, the discourager of hesitancy stepped close behind the prince and whispered, I am here. Now the prince could not hesitate an instant, and he stepped forward and took one of the two ladies by the hand. Loud rang the bells, loud cheered the people, and the king came forward to congratulate the prince. He had taken his lawful bride. Now then, said the high officer to the deputation of five strangers from a far country, when you can decide among yourselves which lady the prince chose, the one who smiled or the one who frowned, then will I tell you which came out of the opened door, the lady or the tiger. At the latest accounts, the five strangers had not yet decided. Okay, now vocabulary. A deputation is a group of people appointed to undertake a mission or take part in a formal process on behalf of a larger group. Venerable is accorded a great deal of respect, especially because of age, wisdom, or character. Demeanor is outward behavior or bearing, attitude. Precipitately means done, made, or acting suddenly or without careful consideration. A concourse is usually a large open area inside or in front of a public building as in an airport or, or train station, but in this case it is a crowd or assembly of people. Impetuous means acting or done quickly and without thought or care. A boon is a thing that is helpful or beneficial, also a favor or request. Precipitancy is rashness or suddenness of action. I want you to notice actually how many words are about acting quickly versus hesitancy, right? Which is about hesitation, waiting, being slow. Uh, scimitar. So I'm including this one partly because of the spelling, which you may not have seen if you're not looking at the actual text. It is S-C-I-M-E-T-E-R. Uh, 
it's unusual. It was actually closer to the French word for the same thing for this particular kind of sword. And I'm also including it partly because I figure not everyone in this is listening is the same kind of fantasy role-playing nerd that I am. I've known what a scimitar is for a very long time, but it is the curved sword that was used throughout the Middle East and most of Asia and which you've seen in Aladdin and Sinbad and every other movie set in that time and era. Formidable means inspiring fear or respect through being impressively large, powerful, intense, or capable. Disposition is a person's inherent qualities of mind and character. An array is an impressive display or range of a particular type of thing. Obeisance is deferential respect. Adroitly means cleverly or skillfully in using the hands or the mind. Dexterity is skill in performing tasks, especially with the hands. Rapture's rampant. Love this line. There's the, the Rapture's rampant ran through his blood. It's beautiful. That's a great alliteration. Uh, rapture means overwhelming joy. Rampant has a couple of interesting meanings here. It means flourishing or spreading unchecked, like rampant growth. Violent or unrestrained in action or performance. Rampant violence. Uh, lush in growth and luxuriant. The first two, which are more common, are both negative in connotation. So saying that the raptors ran rampant through his blood is actually interestingly uh, oxymoronic. Countenances. A countenance is a person's face or facial expression. Disapprobation means strong disapproval, typically on moral grounds. And reproach is to address someone in such a way as to express disapproval or disappointment. All right, let's talk about the story. This one's different. It's funny how often I say things like that, because everything's different. I mean that this one is divergent from the norm, but what's the norm? It's a short story, because that's the time frame of this podcast. Written in English, because that's a language I speak and understand. It's fiction, because that's what most of my experience, and also I think the element of literature that aligns most specifically with language arts, with, because nonfiction comes through all kinds of places, but language arts people like me have the most to say about fiction, so I tend to focus on fiction. So what I'm saying is this one is exactly like all the others. But now let's talk about what makes it unique because that's the interesting stuff. It's different because we can't talk about this one without talking about the lady or the tiger. This one is dependent on another story. It really can't stand alone. This one tells us that right from the beginning because the first sentence set the, sets the story in relation to the incident of the lady or the tiger. The second paragraph then summarizes that story, and the third paragraph sets the ultimate goal of the deputation, the characters in the story, which is to find out the answer to the question posed by the first story, the lady or the tiger. So, since this story is so focused on that issue, but is a story in and of itself, we'll do this in two parts. First, we'll try to just talk about this story by itself, and then we'll see if it gives us an answer to the real question. Honestly, I'd love to do it the other way, just bite through the Tootsie Pop to get straight to the Tootsie Roll Center. But everything I have to say about what this story gives us for an answer is dependent on understanding this story. So doing it the straightforward way makes more sense. So let's get to licking. Uh, by the way, the answer is 904 licks to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. I counted. So the deputation asks their question, and the officer of the semi-barbaric king's court gives them a sort of riddle. And at the end, he says that if you can solve this riddle, then he will give the answer to their question. Great. Let's see if we can solve the riddle. Here's the setup. The semi-barbaric king, let's call him semi-barb, has scads of beautiful women in his court. A concourse of beauty, the narrator tells us, famed through all the land. The explanation we're given for this famed plethora of pulchritude, yeah, you heard me, is, quote, our great king is very fond of the presence of beautiful women about his court. Which is interesting, because that seems to imply selfishness on the part of an autocrat, that the king likes to ogle purdy girls, and so he takes all the purdiest girls from all the land. All the ladies in waiting upon the queen and royal family are most lovely maidens brought here from every part of the kingdom, we are told. But that's interesting, because the lady-in-waiting is actually a good thing. It was a position of respect, which allowed young women to be social and have friends without being at risk of either harm or loss of reputation for being out of the home while still unmarried. Being a lady-in-waiting allowed young women to see and to be seen by potential romantic partners, usually good matches, because it was the people of the court, the men of the court, nobility, and visiting nobility if you want to go, you know, elsewhere from people in your own kingdom, so you don't get to, I don't know, let's say, Bourbon. Um, so it allowed them to see romantic partners without requiring their families to go to the trouble and expense of hosting like balls and such, or the implied promise of having inviting a specific suitor over to meet the daughter of the house, 
with a potential trouble if that implied promise is broken when it turns out the suitor is a putz. So that is, if the king is bringing all the beautiful eligible young women to his court, then he is acting as at least a de facto matchmaker and also a chaperone and protector for all the young women in his kingdom, at least the most marriageable because beautiful women. Within the context of this ancient kingdom, that's a good thing. And this isn't far-fetched, of course, because the whole story here is about one of these women being matched with this prince who comes from a foreign land specifically to seek a bride. Since the prince is royal, it's unlikely that a young woman from a less noble house would have the opportunity to make this match. But here, the king makes it for her. So, big picture, while we're still talking about arranged marriages and treating women essentially as property, all of which is entirely disgusting. Well, arranged marriages aren't so bad but the people in this story specifically have no choice, so it's much nastier than how those work in our modern world, at least some of the time. At least on Indian Matchmaker on Netflix. Check it out. It's a good show. But within the context of this ancient patriarchal land, this is a positive thing. It is a service the king is offering his people. So basically, while the focus on youth and beauty and the fact that the king likes to have his arranged marriages be literally a blind first date, even more so in this case, are both pretty barbaric, the system whereby the king makes it possible for the women of his court to make valuable matches while under his protection is pretty dang civilized. And there's my dude Semibarb. And we know, by the way, that these women are under, under his protection. They are under his protection because the same paragraph where the bevy of beauties is introduced to us also says, The fame of this concourse of beauty, unequaled in any other royal court, has spread far and wide, and had it not been for the equally widespread fame of the systems of impetuous justice adopted by our king, many foreigners would doubtless have visited our court. Had it not been for our fame of the systems of impetuous justice adopted by our king, many foreigners would visit. So the women bring them in, but the arena keeps them away. Actually, I guess that could be a knock on the king since his arena system ruins some opportunities for the women. But mostly I read that as the dirtbags out there are too afraid to come to the kingdom and possibly defile some of the young women because if they do that, they get the arena and nobody wants that. Because, not to sound too, like too much of a jerk, but why would someone be afraid of the arena if they haven't committed a crime? So the arena should only be a threat to criminals, which means that this... The sentence that they would be coming if it wasn't for the arena implies that it's the criminals that are being kept away. It's the bad men that are being kept away, which is therefore protection, right? Accepting that within this context, the young warrior from the first story committed what these people see as a crime, namely having an affair with a lady above his station, the king's own daughter. That kind of limit on improper affairs, though it's also patriarchal and gross, is intended to protect these young women's honor and prospects for good marriages. So I think the point here is that the men who would break those rules for the satisfaction of their own lusts stay away for fear of having to face the two doors as that young fellow did in the first story, and that this is overall to the good of the hat full of hotties. But faint heart never won fair maiden, they say. Uh, and I have to add, as a completely introverted, socially awkward coward married to a smoking hot woman, ha! And so, not long ago, a prince shows up and asks for a wife. The prince is of distinguished appearance and undoubted rank. I'm curious if people make it that honestly. I definitely feel like distinguished implies old and maybe wealthy. The undoubted rank is definitely about money and position. So, neither of these descriptors says that this prince is good looking. I wonder if that actually plays a role in the story later. But regardless, he's certainly wealthy and noble and not hideous, so he asks for a wife. And how does Semibarb react? He's pissed. Really pissed. And everyone in Semibarb's court expects their king to react with rage. But why? Isn't this the point of the gathering of gorgeousness? To marry them off to powerful rich dudes? Apparently not. Quote, when our king heard this bold announcement, his face reddened. He turned uneasily on his throne, and we were all in dread, lest some quick words of furious condemnation should leap from out his quivering lips. So, he gets mad, and maybe they're reacting to him being mad, but what they're afraid of, what they're in dread of, is quick words of furious condemnation leaping out from his quivering lips, which implies not that this is some completely arbitrary, you know, barbaric, insane rage, but they know what this is for, that he's going to condemn the prince for making this request. They understand that. They expect that. Now, we could see this as a counterpoint to what I've been saying about Semibarb's basically magnanimous motivation in bringing all these women to his court. He might be jealous and possessive of his battery of babes. 
And that's why he's angry that a prince came and dared to ask if he could take one of the babes away. Maybe even despite the threat of the king's arbitrary justice, which maybe, if we're reading this reaction as the insane temper of a tyrant, is more about the king's cruel method of getting rid of his enemies than it is about finding out the dictates of fate. But notice, the blame is placed on the prince. When the king heard this bold announcement is when he reacts. And also notice that he does, in fact, arrange the marriage, at least potentially. Presumably, he would refuse the prince if Semibarb wanted all of his lovely ladies-in-waiting to keep on waiting. Though again, like the Lady or the Tiger, I think Stockton writes this intentionally ambiguously, so that we can read it either way. The king could be outraged that someone wants to take away one of his pretties, and he could be this angry precisely because this prince is too rich and powerful for the king to get rid of him Jabba the Hutt style and just press the button on the side of the throne to drop him through the trapdoor and down the chute into his arena where he will be devoured by the rancor. Wait, no, sorry. Carried away by my analogy. Anyway, the king might be counting on the prince to fail the test so Semibarb can keep all of his women and whack the would-be groom and then blame that execution on the prince himself with the same argument for perfect fairness that is used in the arena. Well, the prince made the decision himself. Can't blame me if he couldn't even pick out his own wife. Onward, and let's see if we can decide what King Semibarb is really upset about and what he's trying to do here. So, the prince tries to ask for something. And the king overrides him and sends him away with a strong sense of autocratic imperiousness. Say no more, roared the king. My royal orders have been given and nothing more is needed to be said. You asked a boon, I granted it, and I will hear no more on the subject. So he's roaring and cutting off the prince. And he's, you know, saying what I say is all that needs to be said. There is no other side. There is nothing else. There is no counter argument. There is only what I say. So the prince, of course, ends up troubled and perplexed by this. I do not understand, he said to his attendants, this precipitancy of action. And notice that, again, this is saying, he's saying that the king is rushing, that he's not going slowly enough, that we should wait and go slower. When am I to see the ladies that I may choose among them? I wish opportunity not only to gaze upon their forms and faces, but to become acquainted with their relative intellectual development. Notice that. What he wishes for an opportunity to gaze upon their forms and faces. He doesn't even say, I mean, of course it's implied, but what he says is he wants to ogle. He wants to look at the pretty people. That's his first goal. That's the first thing he says. We can tell you nothing was the answer. What our king thinks right, that will he do. And more than this, we know not. His majesty's notions seem to be very peculiar, said the prince. And so far as I can see, they do not at all agree with mine. So the prince is puzzled not by the king's rage, nor by the granting of the boon. Clearly, he expects to get what he wants, being all rich and noble and stuff. But the king is going too fast. And his real problem seems to be that he and the king do not think the same way, do not see eye to eye on this. He can't understand the king having different opinions than the prince does. And that, of course, brings out the title character, who we have heard nothing about before this moment. Right? We're all this far into the story before we even know who the discourager of hesitancy is. Which is interesting because it is a very unusual title. And yet, we've had no idea what the hell it means or what it has to do with the Lady or the Tiger or with King Semibarb or this here confiscated prince. But I love this guy. Calm, smiling, muscular, and cradling this razor-sharp sword like an infant. Like it's his baby. And when the prince... I, I, bet, he's given, I bet it has a name. Anyway, and when the prince asks who he is, he says... I, said the other with a courteous smile, am the discourager of hesitancy. When the king makes known his wishes to anyone, a subject or visitor whose disposition in some little points may be supposed not to wholly coincide with that of his majesty. Notice that. All it takes is little points that may be supposed. You don't have to know for sure, but there's an appearance that you may disagree slightly with his majesty. Then the discourager is appointed to attend him closely that should he think of pausing in the path of obedience to the royal will, he may look at me and proceed. And the prince, of course, proceeds. Again, notice that it's not a question of leaving the path of obedience. Nobody defies the will of the king. It's just pausing. So what the heck is this guy? Throughout the story, he follows the prince around, and when the prince takes a moment to think, the discourager of hesitancy leans forward and says softly, I am here. 
First of all, that's a fantastic image. This is the politest threat I think I have ever heard in my life. The only thing that even comes close is the song from the musical Hamilton, when Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr are building up to their duel and sending letters to each other, signing everyone, I have the honor to be your obedient servant. At the end of a letter that said, in courteous verbiage, I'm going to shoot you in the face. And I think part of the idea here is the same theme we've been working with for two stories now. The semi-barbaric king, right? A combination of barbarism and civilized. The large man with the giant sword is barbaric. The fact that he stands close by and smiles and politely says, Your Highness, said the discourager of hesitancy, approaching with a courtly bow, will observe the excellent quality of this edge. That's quite civilized. I also have to note in that one little moment when he says observe the excellent quality of this edge, he plucks a hair and he drops it on the sword and the weight of the hair cuts it over the sword. This is, of course, you know, an absurd amount of sharpness in the sword, but also it's completely passive, right? The discourager himself doesn't do anything to cut the hair. He just holds the sword. The hair cuts itself. There's a lot of passivity in the discourager of hesitancy despite him making all of these pretty dire threats to the to the prince. Anyway, so notice two things about this character before I move on to the climax of the story. One, this is the title character. This is on some level the focus of this story. Not the prince, not the semi-barbaric king, not the arena, not the lady or the tiger, not the trial that is about to happen here. This story is named for the discourager of hesitancy. I think you can't discount the strong possibility that Frank Stockton thought this character and this story were funny and chose the title accordingly. But surely that's not the whole point. This story is trolling us, but that's not all it's doing. And the second thing to notice is that specific title. Now he says, and his behavior shows, that he's there to make sure the prince does what the king wants him to do. He says he's there to prod people along the path of obedience to the royal will. He is basically an enforcer that makes people do what the king wants them to do, even when that thing is horrible. And they would normally resist. But the man's title is not enforcer of alacrity and obedience, nor dissuader of rebelliousness, or any one of a thousand splendiferous titles we could create. He is the discourager of hesitancy. Discourager is probably an understatement, of course, but it does at least say on its face that he will not be swinging that scimitar. He's just there to influence, to nudge, to gently sway people. He discourages. He doesn't force which fits the character's behavior pretty well. And also he's discouraging hesitancy. Again, he says he pushes people to obey the royal will, but it's not as simple as making someone do what the king wants. In both stories, the critical element of the trial, the thing that appeals most to the king, is the equal chance of success or failure. Do we honestly know in this story or in the other one what the king really wants to see happen? Does he want this guy to die? Does he want one of his beautiful ladies-in-waiting to marry the rich and powerful prince? We really don't know. So the D of H is not really just a hired goon who makes people do what the king wants them to do. He makes them choose quickly. He stops them from wasting time. He is the preventer of waffling, the averter of ambivalence, the vanquisher of vacillation. That's what Stockton named this title character. He's the hurry-up-and-choose man. He's the, if I may, shit-or-get-off-the-pot guy. So, in order to follow this theme, let's try to pick this up now. So the prince, despite his qualms, is moving through all the motions of royal hospitality. He is clothed and jeweled and hatted in the finest of fineries, and then he goes to the court to be married. And maybe now it becomes clear what the difference is between what the prince wants and what the king is going to give him, because the prince wants to choose his wife. This is what he's been planning on and hoping for, and the objection he's been raising has been because he wanted to have a chance to look over all the damsels, examine them in both face and form, and also in, quote, relative intelligence. That's an interesting phrase. Relative to each other? Like he wants to find the smartest out of all the young women? Relative to him? Or just, you know, someone relatively smart, but not absolutely smart? Regardless, we see his priority is in the simple fact that he plans to look first at their face and form, and the fact that he came to this kingdom to find his bride because of their reputation for beauty. So, the king is willing to give him a wife, maybe, but is not willing to let the prince choose his wife. Now, this is interesting, but let's go through the rest of the story and then come back to it. Okay, so the prince is blindfolded, right as he is trying to make his demand to be allowed to examine the women and make his choice. 
he's interrupted in his demand by the blindfold, which shows maybe the king's anger. Because the first thing that happens is the guy's mouth is, the prince's mouth is wrapped up. He's shut up. They is silenced. That's the first thing. Is that maybe the king's disdain and contempt for the prince's side of the argument, right? Like he said, I've said what I need to say, and that's all that needs to be said. So he doesn't even want to listen to what the prince has to say. The prince is not just blindfolded, he's swaddled, his entire head wrapped in a silk scarf, which then has to be manipulated in order to make holes for his mouth and ears so he can breathe and talk and hear what is said. Why such an elaborate blindfold? To really ensure that the prince doesn't peek? I mean, maybe the D of H is a good enough guarantee against cheating? Could it be that the king doesn't want the women to see the prince's face either? He starts to take the blindfold off then, and the discourager reminds him, I am here, your highness. Again, such a polite, subtle threat. All requires is presence. No action, just presence. This is made right at the moment the prince was about to fight back and refuse and delay the proceedings. But then they move forward. The woman is brought out in a gentle rustle of silk, and her dainty, delicate, soft hand is placed in the prince's, and the priest asks if she will take him, and she says she will. The prince, enchanted by her hand and her voice and remembering that all the ladies are lovely and also remembering that the discourager is behind him with a giant scimitar, decides to go for it and agrees to take this wife. Then the blindfold is stripped away and the king takes the prince's hand. Apparently he's not that enraged and disgusted by this guy if he's willing to personally lead him by the hand to the final boss challenge to finish the level and make it out of the palace alive. And then the prince is presented with a puzzle. Forty women. It's an interesting number. Each one more beautiful than the last. And the king says, There is your bride. Approach and lead her forth. But remember this, that if you attempt to take away one of the unmarried damsels of our court, your execution shall be instantaneous. Now, delay no longer. Step up and take your bride. Notice the defensiveness and the threat there. The prince is not allowed to take away one of the unmarried damsels or he'll be executed instantaneously. That's the potential crime here. Not get it wrong and you're dead. Not even... Pick someone other than who the king chose for you and you will offend his grand illustriousness and will chop you in half for the insult. No, that's not it. If he gets it wrong, he will be threatening slash insulting one of the young women and that's why they'll kill him. Also, of course, he's not allowed to delay. That seems like a big thing to semi-barb. He doesn't like waiting. So, the prince moves forward as if in a dream probably just because this is such a bizarre situation, but also dreams are generally not within the control of the dreamer as the situation has gone out of the prince's control. They are potentially good and potentially bad at the same time, right? And they often switch from fantasy to nightmare in the blink of an eye. And the significations in your dream are not what they are in the waking world, meaning that things represent things they normally wouldn't represent and are symbolic of things they normally wouldn't be. We have different associations in the dream world than we do in the waking world. So, Maybe this choice isn't really what it seems to be. Maybe the scene isn't really what it seems. Maybe the prince isn't what he really seems to be. So, and then he looks at the women, and what does he see? No difference. They're all lovely. They're all richly dressed. They're all demure and humble and even obedient come to that because they all obey the rules that are stated to them by the king, presumably. Now, partly this is to highlight the prince's danger to make the scene funny, because the more similar they are, the less likely he'll pick the right one, and that pleases us. Well, it pleases me, but I suspect that most readers see the story basically like I do. The prince is not the hero. We're not really rooting for him. I mean, maybe we don't want him to die, but we're enjoying his dilemma. I want him to pick. I want to see what happens. I'd be pretty satisfied either way. Either he gets what he deserves for being kind of a shallow patriarchal schmuck, or there'll be a wedding and a happy ending. Both are fine with me. I just want to know. Hold it right there. Do you see what Stockton has done? He's put us into the arena. We're the ones watching the show on the edges of our seat and not really caring whether the criminal... I mean, is he really a criminal? Did he really do anything wrong? Well, did the guy in the first story really do anything wrong? Not really caring whether the guy gets married or mauled. We're intrigued either way. Fascinated by the idea of making that choice. Because how do you do it? How do you pick either between two doors or between 40 women? Or even at the end, between two women? How could you do anything other than just leave it to chance? Though, obviously, in this case, the chances are a hell of a lot worse. Now it's 1 in 40 on a blind pick instead of 1 in 2. Yikes. 
But enough pondering. As the king says, why this delay? If I had been married this day to one so fair as the lady who wedded you, I should not wait one second to claim her. Notice that. Again, the issue is delay. And also, he highlights that regardless of which woman it was who wedded the prince out of these 40, she is so fair that any man, the king himself, would be eager to claim her as his wife. And then the prince gets his clue. One woman smiles, one woman frowns. Notice this doctor reminds us that these women are all beautiful, that even superlatives don't really apply, because the one who smiles is one of the fairest of these fair women, and the other is just as beautiful, because they're all just as beautiful. And then the prince starts thinking. This paragraph is wonderful because everything he says makes sense and everything contradicts the thing before it. A woman would smile at her husband. No, she'd frown because he hadn't realized yet that she was the one. No, she'd smile to see how foolish he was because she was glad he hadn't married her. No, she'd frown if she thought he was going to pick her and she wasn't the one. She'd smile if she were seeing me for the first time and she thought I was handsome, but she'd frown if she thought I was fugly. And on and on, because his thoughts get interrupted, by the king insisting he choose in 10 seconds or else. And the discourager of hesitancy reminding the prince one last time that he is here. So the prince chooses and wins. Celebration, congratulation, much rejoicing. He got it right. But how did he choose? Once again, we are given an endless tale. I think for several of the same reasons as the first one. I think Stockton wants us to decide. I think he thinks this is funny. I do actually think he was annoyed because I bet he was pestered incessantly by people who weren't willing to accept the ending of his first story, and he wanted to make those people angrier and also make the point that they were never going to get an answer out of him. They needed to figure it out for themselves. And if they kept asking, if they wouldn't just make a choice, then he would torment them more. Do you see it? This story is the threat. It's the discourager of hesitancy. Stockton is telling us to stop waffling, stop overthinking, just pick. Just like all the women are beautiful, both choices are good. They're fine. Does it matter which woman he picks in the story? It does not. And do we know that he's talking to us? There are hints. The deputation, which is us, doesn't know, right, because we're the ones who wanted to know the end of the first story and we came from a far country to ask, what's the answer? The deputation, which is us, doesn't know the end of the story because their friend who was there was too cowardly to stay and watch the end of the show. That's not the king's fault for not giving an ending. It's the witness's fault for not being able to face the ending. It's not Stockton's fault if people can't handle the story as he wrote it and we shouldn't ask him to make it easier on us. And then at the end, when the officer gives him the challenge, he says, when you can decide among yourselves whether the prince chose the lady who smiled or the lady who frowned, then I'll tell you whether it was the lady or the tiger in the other story. I think the clear message here is, if you can decide among yourselves, and he says can, right? He doubts maybe that we have the ability to do this, but that's all we really need is the ability to make that choice without overthinking, without doubting, without equivocating, without hesitating. If we can do that, we won't need to be told whether it was the lady or the tiger because we'll already know. So, which is it? We don't have any idea which woman the prince chooses. Honestly, it's not clear to me that it matters which one he chooses. He wins because he does the right thing. He chooses. He makes a decision. He stops delaying and hesitating and he just picks. Presumably, he throws his fate to the will of the gods or the roll of the dice and he just picks. Like he doesn't have a final clue that we don't know about that makes him pick the woman frowning or the woman smiling. He just random. And that action is the right action. That's the one the king wants. And so the prince gets his reward. So it's interesting to think that really he didn't pick the woman he had been married to, but this one that he picked right here is now his bride because he picked her. Remember, this king doesn't really give a fig about marriage vows and whatnot. So whoever actually went through the ceremony and said, I will, doesn't matter. It could be that whoever the prince picks, as long as he picks, that's the wife. His death, the prince's death, would have been for the crime of delaying. I think that's the point and the reason for the title character. Stockton's trying to tell us that there isn't really a right or a wrong choice. What matters is making a choice. That is to say, using the same example of marriage, lifelong commitment, 
Who can possibly know if the one person you pick is the right person? The one who is perfect for you? What if there is someone else out there who could be better? If you hesitate, if you delay because you want to keep looking to find just the right choice, then you end up with nothing. Because you can always keep delaying. You can always avoid making that choice. Realize that this prince, this wealthy, noble, maybe handsome dude, has traveled to this faraway kingdom to find a pretty woman to marry him. Are we really supposed to believe that there were no beautiful women where he came from? Or if he wanted a noble woman that there weren't other noble families in his kingdom or a neighboring one? That his best choice was to go far away? He was looking for the next one, who was even prettier than the last one. He does it here. He goes all the way down the row of 40 women and then all the way back. He keeps looking for the prettiest one. But that's an endless quest because the next one is always prettier than the last one. There's always somebody prettier. The same thing with that relative intelligence, even if we ignore the sexism in that. The next one is always smarter than the last one. That is, you can always find someone prettier or smarter than the person in front of you. Always. What makes someone the right person for you? The fact that you choose that person. That you stop looking for something different, something better. That you stop hesitating and decide. That doesn't just reveal your fate, your choice of spouse. It determines it. That person becomes the one fated for you because you picked them. The stronger you feel about that decision, the better the decision it becomes when you make it. The enemy is hesitation, uncertainty, doubt. Once you choose, if you really mean it, you will work to ensure that the one you chose is the right choice. And that will make it the right choice. Because you'll put in the work. You'll recognize the good things about the one you picked because you want to be right. And so you focus on the right aspects of your choice, which makes it the right choice. Speaking of right choices, what about the lady or the tiger? What does the story tell us about that one? So I read an essay online on the website www.vardulon.com, which is V-A-R-D-U-L-O-N.com, about these two stories. The author explained that this story was written to show us the answer to the first story by changing the way we think about the choice in the first story. It's a really compelling argument. But I don't agree with the essayist's argument that the whole point of both stories is to resolve the frustration of the unfinished ending. I think that's too much focus on resolution, which is common in our society, where we define stories largely by how they end. Oh, that movie has a Disney ending. It's unrealistic, right? Nothing about the rest of the movie, just the ending is unrealistic. Therefore, the movie is unrealistic. I love the show Dexter, but I hate how it ended. So now I hate the show. Eight seasons of show, and then the ending is bad enough that it makes everything else terrible. We focus too much on resolution. And it shows also a common but not universal need to avoid ambiguity. And if nothing else, I think the second story after the first story shows that Stockton, Frank Stockton, for one, has absolutely no problem with ambiguity. Since the essay needs to find that elusive ending, since the essayist can't stand ambiguity... Weight is given to certain statements more than other statements to come to an answer. So you don't feel like I'm leaving you hanging. The answer in the essay is that this story reveals itself in how it tells us that it has a happy ending, which implies that the king and his kingdom and his tests are kind rather than cruel, which then implies that the princess in the first story is also more kind than cruel, and so she must have sent her lover to the lady in order to save his life. It's a good essay and a good argument, but like I said, I don't agree because I think it starts from the assumption that Stockton is trying to give us clues to find the ending that he hid there, and I don't think he is. But if you are interested, you should go read it yourself. You may like that answer more than mine. I do agree with the Vardalan essay in one way. I think that the semi-barbaric king is focused on fate, on chance, and on choice. As I was saying, I think the point of this story, the discourager of hesitancy, is among other things that hesitation itself is the problem. Overthinking and doubt and sacrificing the good in search of the better. The prince makes the right choice because he chooses, whereas if he had been allowed to search among the ladies of the court, who can say if he would have chosen any of them? Um, there's an interesting question, by the way, which is, how did King Semibarb know that was the problem? He freaks out from the minute the prince asks for a wife. He's immediately mad. He obviously knows that this is the problem because his whole purpose in treating the prince as he does is to eliminate hesitation. 
One possible answer is that this is always the issue because it's part of the human condition and that's why he has the discourager on his staff. But it's neat to think there might have been some clues in the prince's behavior. Maybe, as I said, that he's come from so far away looking for a pretty wife. And the king read those and then decided, okay, this guy just needs to, to move fast. He can't wait. He can't think. I think the implication is then that the story is told to the deputation who are there. And again, they clearly to me represent all the people who came to Stockton looking for an answer to the first story. And they didn't have that answer because the guy who saw the actual event couldn't handle the pressure and ran away. He hesitated, Right. He wouldn't face the choice, the truth, and so he didn't get an answer. So the deputation is told this story as an object lesson. They too should just choose. And I think that's Frank Stockton's answer to our still-burning question. There's not a wrong answer. There's not a right answer. There's just the answer we choose or the agony we suffer when we hesitate and refuse to choose. And to push us to do the right thing, Stockton gives us the discourager of hesitancy. So, if you really want to know if it was the lady or the tiger, just pick. And remember, I'm here. I'll be here next week, too, with another story or poem, this one with an ending. Though, now that the school year is starting up again and I'll have less free time for these podcasts, I think I'll probably have to go to an episode every two weeks or so. I hope that's okay, and I hope you choose to stick with me. Thanks very much.